This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. everybody out there in listening land this is episode 36 of the portland real estate podcast i know normally we talk about what's going on in uh, both my business and steve what's going on with him both on the brokerage side and as an agent but we've got such a great interview in this week's show that i i just didn't want to kind of clutter it up and and really waste any time so i want to dive right into the interview i know you guys are going to dig it so let's do it all right, guys, let's jump into our interview. Steve was gracious enough to find us a fantastic guest for this week's show. And so without further ado, I'm going to let Steve do the intro to our guest that was nice enough to take some time out of his busy day to kind of talk about lending and the Vancouver area. So Steve, why don't you kick it off and introduce our guest? Yeah, thanks, Tucker. So I'm really, really excited to have a good colleague and friend, Matt Ellerding from Home Street Bank on the show. Hi, Matt. Hello, Steve. How are you? I am fantastic. You know, Matt, I think we go back almost a decade now. I think I met you through the 8020 Club. I think that's how we first met. That's back in, that has to have been 2007 now. Yeah, maybe, and, um, maybe earlier. I mean, it's uh, the, the, the club has been around at least 10 years that, that I was in it. And you were one of the, uh, you were one of the charter members as well. So it might even be as early as 05 and 06. But yeah, it's, uh, it's still, still going strong. I've taken a bit of a hiatus from it, you know, just, Part of it was the commute. Part of it was just, you know, I felt like I'd got what I wanted out of it. But, you know, yeah, but that's the genesis of our relationship. And and a lot of cool relationships have spawned out of that 8020 group. So, And just for our listeners, what what is the 8020 group? It's, it's basically a group of, of top producing loan officers, mortgage brokers, right? A bunch of a uh, bunch of mortgage guys, uh, a bunch of mortgage people, uh, all of whom are, are just grand mall addicts. And so we get together and have a meeting and we stand up and we talk about our addiction to uh, the mortgage. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh... no, it's uh, it just it, basically there's there's some criteria where, you know, they want us to they want you to have closed X amount of, you know, transactions you know, in a given year. They want you to have at least so many years under your belt. So it's it's just a bunch of, you know, mucky mucks. And we get together and commiserate about about the industry, about Dodd-Frank, about, you know, how do we compensate our assistants, you know, how to, you know, marketing strategies, RESPA issues. So just anything and everything that we all kind of share collectively as a bunch of, you know, nefarious uh, mortgage brokers, that's uh, that's what the group was created for. Yeah. And it was founded originally, I think, with the idea of kind of just, you know, sharing best practices. But, you know, during that time period, I think it quickly became a support group <laughs> yeah. as, as the Abs- downturn began. Right. 08 and 08, like, 08 was, was yeah, it transitioned like crying into your beers and talking about your your stories but i instantly hit it off with matt here he's an interesting combination well first of all for those who know him he's a character and a half and he's a great combination of just a really smart dude who's also equally funny and he just rip roars and makes you laugh and just a fun guy to to hang out with and and we've actually i think you've been to my house matt and and we've hung out and done a few things on the side as well over the years. So we're hey, before we get into it though, Steve, I obviously I don't have as, as much of a history with Matt. In fact, I have none other than this interview that we're doing here today. But I will say I did try and do a little bit of background research just so I could kind of get to know who our guests are a little bit. And I got to say, you got one of the funniest bios I think I've ever read in my life. And, you know, after having you on the show here for about a minute, 
I can tell that it was probably meant to be funny <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily serious. But the story about the bus full of little children and defending them against a, a, a pack of ravenous dogs with a nine iron and some kibbles and bits. I thought yeah, that was pretty hilarious. Yeah, that was that one of my proudest moments. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, was, uh, I had to bring that up on the show. Yeah. They, they still send me little thank you notes from time to time. And uh, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm very, very proud of that moment. So, yeah, so it so never, Matt, never, so, it never happened, but I'm I'm still proud. Right. Of it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. So, all right, now we can proceed. <laughs> yeah, so we're excited to have you, Matt. Obviously, you're a big fixture in the mortgage community, but you're also a Vancouver guy. And Tucker and I kind of talked amongst ourselves, and we're like, we really wanted to connect well with our Vancouver listeners and and really speak about that wonderful suburb of Portland. Which, by the way, I I reconfirmed what I pretty much already knew. It is the largest suburb of Portland. Whereas, you know, Gresham and Hillsborough are technically like the fourth and fifth largest cities in Oregon. Vancouver is larger. And so sometimes that's forgotten because there's a river in between and it's a different state. But make no mistake, those people, they pull on Portland's infrastructure and our, our city and, you know, our nightlife, our restaurants, and they add and contribute to our economy tremendously. So it's it's really good to connect with and talk about that wonderful suburb, as well as also talking about the mortgage industry in general and the mortgage industry in Vancouver specifically. So let's kind of go into it a little bit. For starters, tell us about yourself, how long you've been in the mortgage business, and a little about your company. So it's funny you mentioned the, the Vancouver piece. I live in Battleground, actually, and, and if you would have asked me 15 years ago if I could see myself living out in the country with this, you know, menagerie of mayhem in my backyard. I mean, we have we have over fifty-five animals, and including an alpaca. And I didn't even know what <laughs> what the hell an alpaca was uh, until we had one. I was told not to make eye contact or they'll spit on you. So I'm, you know, my eyes are cast downward as I'm, you know, shepherding this alpaca back to uh, add to the barn. But yeah, I, you know, live out in the country on on acreage, and I love it. And about eighteen years ago, I got tired of the commute to Portland every day. Uh, not only was I paying income tax, but I was wasting an hour in and an hour back. And so one day I just kind of did the mental math. I thought, wait a minute, it's an hour a day each way. So that's two hours a day. You know, in, in the course of uh, in the course of a month, I have spent 40 hours, you know, road raging my way up and down the I-5. And so, you know, a, an entire work week you know, 40 hours every single month. And I thought there's got to be, you know, and, and audiobooks are great and all that's fine. But eventually it drove me. So, I mean, my, my transition to the mortgage business, embarrassingly, was was motivated by no, nothing else than not wanting to commute every day and, and, and saving on the income tax. Because by working and living in Washington, I'm able to circumvent the Oregon income tax, even though, and I don't know if I should admit this, but even though I, I, there's still a pretty healthy percentage of my business that comes out of the uh, Oregon market. Well, the IRS is listening, so you know, they, they've already audited me. So my name is Stu Sandor. S A N D O R. So anyway, yeah, that that was uh, that was the the original genesis for for the transition of the mortgage business. But I, I you know, I, I wanted something that you know, sky's the limit. I mean, I like I like the the sort of daunting nature of a hundred percent commission because no one can tell me how how little or how much I can make. So I, I like I like that sort of motivated by fear element that this business has. And, you know, you kind of be your, your own boss to a certain degree. And, you know, we've got to follow all the rules and regulations of, of the industry and of our company. But for the most part, there's a there's a healthy amount of autonomy and that separation of church and state that allows us to to go about running our operation the way we, you know, we feel is most advantageous. 
Yeah, it's, and, it's pretty cool. It's also a double-edged sword, like you mentioned. The you, you know, a lot of days you come, you go to work out of fear, right, of of not having business, not having a paycheck. Now, of course, you're farther along. You've got a book of business. It becomes much more predictable as you as you stick around. Especially, you know, you've been in it for a long time. You rode the roller coaster down. You're riding it back up. You know, the herd thinned. I'm sure things are are much better now than they were in terms of just your overall, your size of your book of business, consistency, everything. But yeah, it can be a little frightening at the beginning. That's for sure. Right. And Matt, you are currently with Home Street Bank, but if I'm not mistaken, you had a little bit of a rough go with a few company changes because you were with, was it MetLife for quite a while? And yeah, so I was. I started with Chase. I went to Mellon Mortgage knowing that Mellon was going to be selling to Chase within months of starting in the business. And and I, I liked Chase because I'd heard of Chase. It had that sort of swagger. It had that sort of machismo and clout of, you know, Chase Manhattan with a chest thump, you know, and that, and that worked out great. I was, 11, I was, I was there 11 years. That last year was nothing short of awful. And, and that was for all of us because of that transition with the, the mortgage meltdown, the financial crisis, whatever you want to call it. But Chase certainly was at the forefront of that. And, and when the whole Washington mutual debacle went down and Chase basically, you know, rescued them from, you know, utter decimation, it, it became apparent that even though we had brick and mortar on virtually every street corner in America moving forward, they, Chase, didn't have a need for these, uh, you know, these big producers. They, they could, you know, put some kid, you know, 26-year-old kid in, in khaki pants and a button-up Chase uh, shirt, <laughs> stick him in the back cubicle of every branch and, and, and pay him a fraction of what they're paying us. And, um, and, and frankly, I just don't have the mouth for a, a retail branch environment. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I never liked that that whole model. You know, you get what you pay for in the mortgage game. I, I truly believe that, and I think that some of those bigger banks did go with the let's hire younger and lesser experienced, and really a lot of people that have no idea what they're doing. It's it's the whole sheep sheep and wolves, right? I mean, you know, these sheep that just sit there and they're they're glorified order takers, and the wolves who go out and and get the business and actually build the business rather than this churning, you know, existing clientele. So you saw a very uh, just a mass exodus out of Chase. You know, beginning in you know mid '08 and and continuing on for the next year, and so virtually all of their top producers left, and and some of them went to big banks, other big banks, some of them went to the smaller institutions. But my team and I went over to MetLife, but it was at that time that I had that sort of that uh, that epiphany, that aha moment, where I'm like, okay, you know, MetLife, you know, you think of Snoopy, right? And and there was no way that I was going to have some cartoon beagle on my business card that was going to represent. <laughs> what I, you know, what I've been working with for the last 10 years and, you know, to, to build. And so at that time, I, that's when I went the sort of autonomous route of creating, you know, the Ellerding team with our own logo, our own, you know, phone number, our own website, you know, so, you know, we still are very much, you know, employee of whatever bank we're working for, whether it's been you know, MetLife and, and then of course, most recently Home Street. But, but as far as the outside world is concerned, we, we market ourselves and promote the Ellerding team because at this point, you know, our, most of our clientele, it's, you know, referral based and they're more interested in working with the people as opposed to whatever fancy logo happens to be on my business card that day. And the, and the bank that I'm currently with is very flexible in letting us have that, that separation as long as we're following the rules and we are. But, uh, yeah, the, the MetLife experiment was, was proof because all of us, 4,500 of my friends and I lost our job in the form of a 15 minute conference call 
with a, a certain corpulent manager who shall rename nameless Brian Hale. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he just said, "Hey, we're done. We're we're exiting the mortgage business. You have 15 days to get your stuff together and get out." And so I, I kind of I couldn't help but sort of enjoy the the element of, of Schadenfreude that existed because my team and I was going to be a a non-event. I mean, everybody. But I had to say, oh, hey, here's my new email address. Here's my new phone number. Here's my new everything. For my team and I, we just needed a new place to hang our hat, and we would be business as usual the next day. And What uh, year was that, Matt? That was uh, January of 12. Okay. So, and, and Home Street, you know, it's been great. It's If you would have asked me, you know, five years ago, six years ago, if I could see myself working for a small regional bank based out of Seattle, I would have laughed at you. I was always a big bank guy. But now that I'm with a smaller bank who's got that that element of flexibility and the nimbleness, if that's a word, it's been a great fit. And I, and I feel bad because you know I lend in about eight different states, eight or nine different states, and I don't have to be go out and get individual licenses. Because I'm with a bank, I, it's one license and I'm able to lend in all the states that they lend in. Whereas if I went to you know Joe's Mortgage Shack, I would have to get you know an Oregon license, Washington. Alaska, Hawaii, Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, and so on and so forth. And so it's is Joe's Mortgage Shack right next to Joe's Crab Shack? <laughs> it is indeed. They have a lot of promotional. Uh, <laughs> Which is right by who song Larry's Mind You. So, so cross promotion there. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Matt, I do remember that in 2008 you, when you when you left Chase. I remember you talking about that, and you were saying, "Hey, never again am I going to have to change emails and go through this. I'm getting my own email address. I'm going to only market my mobile number." And boy, that saved your bacon in 2012, didn't it? Huge. I mean, because I, you know, at some point, the the outside world, your referral partners, your clientele, all the folks that you've created these relationships with, this this proverbial sphere of influence, at some point, they're going to say, "Hey, man, is it the company or is it you?" Because after your third or fourth little diatribe of, you know, hey, this new company is this is where the this is where the, the magic is at and their products and their rates and their blah, 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 blah. You know, come on, man. I mean, you know, you're not fooling anybody. You know, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. I mean, at some point you have to understand that people are going to look at you and say, hey, this this is a little bit suspect that you keep moving around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, I think there was a lot of account executives that did that, too, on the, you know, that represented some of the wholesale banks. And uh, they'd come in one week with one company and another with another. And they'd be like, oh, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And you're thinking in the back of your head. What the hell's wrong with this guy? You know, <laughs> it, it, that happens on the retail side too, with with uh, actual you know clients that need mortgages. So I yeah. think it was a, it was a really smart move, and you know as we've talked about it, that's exactly it, it, what it is. It is a delicate dance. I mean, because you do need to make sure that you're not misleading anybody. That you know the alerting team is not a a corporation. You know, we're not funding these loans. We are not. You know, we don't have our own HR department. Thank God. Uh, you know, I mean, we're just—it's—it's it's nothing more than a marketing strategy, and and one that's above board and legit. But it allows us to promote my team, and you know, because when I when people see, you know, my team and my face and, and my my assistants' faces, I, I I want that connection to be synonymous with with mortgages, and you know, cartoon beagles or blue octagons or. You know, white picket fences or whatever Home Street's using. That's all great, but that's not. You know, I think that the the more that we as industry people, whether you be a real estate agent, a loan officer, escrow officer, whomever, the more of your own personality that you can inject into the transaction and inject into the overall 
you know, essence of, of your operation, the better, because it, it creates that element of differentiation. Because at the end of the day, I mean, all of us, you know, we're all hawking the same commodity. You know, I mean, nobody has better rates than anybody else. Nobody has some amazing product that nobody else has. It, it's about the relationships. It's about that synonymous connection where, you know, when you hear Steve Nassar's name, you, you know who you're dealing with, you know. So I, I think that that, like I said, in 12, or actually the, the move from Chase to MetLife is when I had that epiphany. But yeah, that, that's been, in my 18-year career, that's probably been the best move that I've made. That's great. And I, I think this is valuable for our listeners too, Matt. I mean, there's a reason why we're talking about this. We have a lot of listeners. We've got, and a lot of them are realtors and, and there's a lot of mortgage industry people as well. I will tell you, I've made some sudden and rapid moves in years past and it is a night and day experience. If you've marketed your landline to the office and the company email, you have such a different journey than somebody like you who now I, I will always only market my mobile phone number and my domain email that I own personally. And I think that's just a smart thing for all of our listeners to do. Hey, let's move along into this interview. Tell us about the mortgage industry today. What are the greatest opportunities? What are the greatest challenges? It's interesting. The greatest challenges is all the new red tape and regulation and the hoop jumping that, that is, has come at us in the last couple of years as a result of you know, the fallout of, of the 2008 mortgage crisis or financial crisis. The tragic irony, almost comical irony of the situation is that all these rules and regulations and red tape, you know, Dodd-Frank and the tightening down of, of the industry were meant to police all these, these nefarious characters who frankly should have never been in the mortgage business to begin with. They, they saw it as a get-rich-quick scheme. They came in, they made their money, they, they really messed things up, and then they slithered on to their next opportunity. And that's upsetting because... You know, they're gone. And, and those of us who, who call this a career from day one, who were committed to doing it right and who were committed to playing by the rules, we're the ones left to deal with the, the sort of the fallout and all the carnage of this, you know, this pendulum that has swung so far to the conservative side of the ledger and, and the ridiculous amount of I-dotting and T-crossing. And you have, you know, I, I have millionaires, millionaires who, you know, have a, a $600 deposit in their checking account, just some random deposit, and the underwriter wants them to write up an LOE, a letter of explanation, explaining the essence of the $600. And I feel like saying to the underwriter, do you realize that, that this gal makes more than $600 when she brushes her teeth? I mean, <laughs> it, it, is, it is ridiculous that we're putting people through this extraneous nonsense to make sure that, that we've got a sellable loan. Because quite frankly, you know, the characters who were doing all the shady stuff, they're either in prison or off to their next get rich quick scheme. They're not even here anymore. But that's the typical American reaction, right? I mean, the pendulum swings way, way this way and then it'll eventually come back to center and we'll, we'll get back to some level of normalcy. But, but right now, to answer your question, Steve, that is the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is, is dealing with all the nonsense. Is it actively getting worse? Is it getting a little bit better? Is it pretty flatlined? It's getting a little better. I, you know, you're seeing 80-10-10 loans come back. You're seeing some PIWs, a pr property inspection waiver, which is basically the waiver of an appraisal. Fannie Mae is, is lightened up on their buy and bail process, you know, where you turn your old house into a rental and you have to create a... Uh, rental agreement, you know, you used to have to get an appraisal to prove this much equity and, you know, all that other little, little stuff. So, so the, the short answer to the question is yes, it's getting a little better, but, but the key word is little. And, and I think that we still have a ways to go. And frankly, I mean, not to, not to be controversial, but I, I think that we're headed for 
another correction, not nearly as dramatic as what we saw in 2008. But I think that when you step back and, and you are truly objective about what's going on out there, you know, for example, in the Portland market, I haven't seen one contract, not one single contract come across my desk in the last, I don't know, year, year and a half that was at list or less. Every single purchase and sales contract that hits my day, we do about five or six transactions a month out of Portland. The lion's share of our business comes out of Washington and Alaska, but, but Oregon represents about, you know, 15% of our business. And every contract, five a month or more, has been over list. Guys, that's just not sustainable. I, I, you know who I feel bad, the worst for? And far be it from a loan officer to have sympathy for an appraiser because it's like (laughs) it's the Hatfield and McCoys, right? I mean, we're just not supposed to like one another. But I genuinely have a sympathy for these appraisers who are having to find comps in in real time. I mean, this this stuff is changing in real time. And uh, just not 20 minutes before this interview started, I got an appraisal back. And sure enough, it was $20,000 light. But the buyer had to come in over asking in order to to be the one that was selected. And and Mm. now the appraiser throws his hands up. He says, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? I mean, there is no comps to support what you're doing. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, it's, it's interesting you brought that up because I actually read an article this morning from DS News that was basically the title of it. This year's housing forecast looks a lot like 2006. Now, me and Steve have talked about kind of going back and forth on the market and what the drivers are and things like that. I definitely think there are at-risk areas. I think that there's, there's areas, especially within the Portland Metro, we do a, a monthly segment that talks all about the different parts of town, what the overall appreciation's been. I've, I'm not going to say it again, but I have my part of town that I think is overinflated. I think it needs to, to flatline or take a step back. I think people are paying too much for what stuff's worth. And, you know, we've been in the trenches in every part of town for the last eight years, you know, so I've seen the changes. I've seen what I think stuff should sell for and what it is selling for. And you're seeing it too with your contracts, all this over list stuff. And, you know, I think you're right. I think it's overheated, but me and Steve have also talked about it's kind of the cycle, right? Sellers start to get greedy, right, Steve? And then they push the envelope to a point and then buyers say, you know what? Screw that. That's ridiculous. And then the market takes a step back and kind of corrects itself. I think we're on the knuckle of maybe another one of those, but you know, we'll see. I'm interested in what I you guys think, think. You're absolutely right. And I think that the other, the other element that will play a role is the interest rate. I, I think that you have a, a tremendous amount of people who are, are perched atop this, uh, this fence of indecision and, and no one wants to be the last one to the dance, but at the same time, no one wants to be the first one in the pool either. So you've got, you know, all these people who, who now that you're hearing about, your coworkers, stepbrothers, ex-wife who bought that condo over here, or your neighbor's college kid who bought a house, and you know all these different things. You know, when it starts to affect you personally, and you're seeing it, you know, you're seeing the real results. You know, it's kind of like a diet fad. You don't believe it works until you see one of your, you know, your fatty friends, you know, lose forty pounds. <laughs> like, Whoa, hey, this this actually works. You know. And so I think that people are seeing that the realities of the rates and what's what's available, even if you're going to pay a premium, I think that as we start to creep up a little bit, and of course, we've got the, the election as a major wild card, but as rates start to creep up, I think you're going to see this last kind of crazy push, and then you're going to see things stagnate. You're going to see a plateau and maybe even an element of correction. Mm-hmm. But, but I've often said I would rather overpay for a house and, and get a really sexy interest rate if it's a home that I'm going to hold on to for a stretch, if it's a buy and fix and flip, you know, put a put a coat of lipstick on it and sell it for profit. You know, you want to be careful the premium that you're paying. But if it's a buy and hold, if it's a family home, you know, don't worry about the premium because the interest rate is going to be the driving factor long haul. 
but yeah, as as we lose, you know, fifty basis points, a hundred basis points, I think you're going to see some some short term, you know, craziness, and then it's going to, you know, I don't think it's going to flatline, you know, some nuclear winter, but it's going to be interesting, and I think. I think things are going to be status quo until after the election. Yeah. I'm with you on that, Matt. You know, along those lines, I mean, a couple of things that are different this time than it, they were almost exactly 10 years ago, mind you, is the influx of people moving to Portland. That is new. That wasn't happening quite to the extreme that it is today. I mean, Portland is really one of the hot tickets in the country with as many people moving here as anywhere else. The other thing is just what you said. I mean, the mortgage industry does still have tight reins. It could have been easy for Fannie and Freddie and all the, the big players a year or two ago to go, hey, we don't have to be that careful anymore. Everything's going up in value, but they didn't, and they're being much more cautious there. So that said, though, I think we are going to see, I mean, it can only last so long before there's a correction. And the reason, part of the reason that this market took off so dramatically was there was what you would call pent-up demand. There was people in 2010, 2009, 2011 who maybe they had gone through a foreclosure and they couldn't buy, or maybe they were underwater in their house, but they, but suddenly they had a three bedroom house and a new kid's born and they've got four kids now. And maybe someone else, you know, got married, but they're renting and they couldn't quite buy it. Well, 12 comes along, 13, 14, you start to see those people just emerge into the market and and like you said, it, it kind of goes with wildfire. All of a sudden, everybody's buzzing about how great a time it is to buy, and, and that just takes off. Right. At some point, I'm with you, and I agree that I almost feel like we're borrowing next year's buyers today. It's people who maybe maybe they're just getting out of college, and maybe they shouldn't be buying a house yet, but their parents are like, oh, it's a great time to buy. Let me help you. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, you're going you're gonna to experience the opposite of that, which is almost like an, an overbought, where those those who bought have already purchased and you're, you're just going to have a natural correction. I agree though. It will not be as prominent and as extreme as it was last time. I also think that there's going to come a point where all the sellers are going to hear that correction is happening. And then you're going to see a flood of inventory, which will also soften markets as well. Matt, real quick question for you. Is Vancouver experiencing the same thing or no? You know, we, Vancouver is, is an interesting sort of sociological case study as it relates to real estate. You know, we've always kind of been a little bit of the trailing indicator of Portland. I mean, because, you know, for all intents and purposes, I mean, Vancouver is 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 North Portland, right? But there is a little bit of a stigma, I think, where Vancouver is is a little bit of the kind of ugly stepsister of, of Portland. And, and, and I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the, the, the pinkies flared out, you know, skinny jeans, you know, sort of hoity-toity types that would that live in Portland that would say that. Now, as somebody who lives in Vancouver, works in Vancouver, but still does a lot of business and spends a lot of time in Oregon, you know, I, I see it as, as a pretty happy and healthy marriage. You know, people are willing to commute from Vancouver, Battleground, you know, even La Center. You get more bang for your buck as it relates to, you know, to the type of house. And and the commute is a little bit of a nightmare, but, you know, you just kind of succumb to the realities that everybody else is dealing with. Uh, again, for me, I was kind of fortunate to find a good career, a good fit for me and be able to work and live here in Vancouver, not pay income tax, but not have to give up my Oregon business either. But for those people who physically need to be in Oregon, you know, I could see the, the commute being a little bit of a of a challenge. But other than that, I mean, you know, Vancouver real estate is, you know, you, you get more bang for your buck. And, and as far as I'm concerned, it's no more daunting to get to Vancouver than it is to get to, uh, you know, Gresham or Hillsboro or Beaverton or whatever. I mean, I just think that there's a, 
an unjustified stigma that exists once you cross over that bridge. I don't know if I agree with you on that, Matt. I, I think the commute from, from Portland to Vancouver <laughs> is probably worse than the commute from Portland to Gresham. Just because there's uh, there's so many different routes people can take. And that commute north is pretty, pretty brutal. 26 and 217 is god-awful, though. I will get I will agree with Matt there. There's, you know, getting to the epicenter of Beaverton to downtown or anywhere else makes you want to put a gun in your mouth most days. <laughs> Same as going over the bridge and going up to Vancouver to and from. I think there are varying degrees of terrible. So you no, know. And, and again, I'm, I'm probably not. I'm probably not the best guy to ask because I, you know, my my trips to Portland, I can count on on one hand each month. I mean, it's a very infrequent, and certainly not during prime this, rush hour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'll, my, I'm a big Oregon Symphony fan, so you know, uh, on a Friday evening at six o'clock, you know, I'm going against the grain, so that's not too bad. But yeah, for somebody who does it every day, I empathize because, like I said, I mean, I, I switched careers not because I wanted to get into finance, but because I wanted to stop with this hour-long commute each way every day, and it's only gotten worse. Steve, you were sharing with me when we were prepping for this, you know, some of the statistics about the percentage of increase in, in traffic. It's staggering. It's a staggering amount of, you know, a, a problem that, that exists, and I don't know how they're going to solve it, you know. Yeah. So I just don't know. I would even say that some the Vancouver traffic is almost like the epicenter of a lot of the Portland traffic. In other words, I live downtown. I, I work in, in Lake Oswego. So at 5 o'clock on weekdays, I'm heading to downtown. My traffic is garbled up because of the, the Vancouver traffic. I mean, it, it backs up all the way to where, you know, 4 or 5, I-5, five, that and the, the NATO Parkway all come together. There's all the way through the Twilliger Curve. So the same I've, – I've noticed the same thing with 84 – a lot of downtown people who live in Washington, Vancouver specifically, are trying to get home. Well, they're all the better of the two bridges is, is the 205 bridge. So many of them are blocking up 84, trying to get over to 205 so they can get home. And and that causes, back to your point, Matt, that does cause Gresham people headaches because now their their path is blocked as well. So I think I think a lot of the the Vancouver traffic issue and primarily the I5 bridge. I think it regurgitates and causes a lot of other issues. Let's talk specifically. Matt, you do a ton of business. You're obviously working with buyers, sellers, and people doing both. Are you hearing this from them? Are, do you have clients who are saying to you, hey, Matt, I'm selling my house. I'm buying an organ. I want to use you to, to get the loan. By the way, I'm doing that because I work in Oregon. I just can't deal with the traffic anymore. Or is that just not something you deal you with? Know, I, I think I, I don't see it as being a primary you know, top of the list motivation. But I absolutely see it being part of the decision-making process. So as much as you know, you see you know school districts, the size of the yard, the you know all the other factors that go into the decision-making process when when someone or a couple buys a home. I do see the the commute becoming you know a, a part of the equation. I had a transaction just uh, last month where the husband and wife got into a pretty healthy little argument right in my office about you know, <laughs> Awkward. who, who is going to have to you know compromise more because they both the two homes they were looking at both met all their criteria it boiled down to the commute plain and simple and the husband went one direction the wife went the other direction and that's that's where they had to agree you know whether it be a you know intense no holds barred match of rock paper scissors or whatever i don't know how they <laughs> how they eventually solved it. But but I, I remember thinking to myself, it's that's interesting that that was the sticking point on, on this particular transaction and that particular property. So again, I've become a little bit, uh, you know, I, I purposely, I went onto Google Maps to route the most 
backwoods, circuitous route to and from my office, I hit one stoplight to and from my office. It's all back roads. It's it's red barns and white three-railed fences. It's it's a very, you know, pretty commute so that I can, you know, listen to my, my Chopin, my Beethoven, and just not think about interest rates or clients or closing dates or angry listing agents. None of that. It's just me and back roads. And that's those 15 minutes to and from work each day are the most glorious 15 minutes of my day because it allows me to escape. I can't imagine what it would be like to be sitting in, you know, five lanes of traffic that isn't moving. That, well, I, I can tell you, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want any part of that. So, Are you, you know, seeing or many Oregonians move to Vancouver? Yeah, I, I, I think that, again, I mean, we're, humans are simple, right? We're very, very simple. We're emotionally based creatures. And I think that once, you know, it starts to affect our, our initial sphere of influence and we see our coworker or our neighbor or our, our sister-in-law or, or whomever doing something that we think maybe has some merit, you know, buying on the other side of the river because you get more bang for your buck. You see this, this momentum and, and a, a little bit of a, a shift in people's thinking. And so Vancouver is starting to get more and more of displaced Oregonians because they realize the commute is no more worse than going to Beaverton or Gresham. And you are going to get more bang for your buck. And, uh, and, and in some situations, you know, somebody who, who works out of their home, they might be able to get out of the Oregon income tax. Um, yeah, I know um, that's a draw for a lot of people. To... I don't think everybody realizes that you, even if you if you live in Vancouver and you work in Portland, that, that you're not, you know, uh, you, you don't get out of paying it. I Absolutely. Think that, I think what? a lot of people, that's a misconception. Absolutely. Um, you have to work up there as well. So I think people, some people figure that out along the way, but... I hear a lot of people say, oh, I want to move up there because I want to avoid income tax. It's like, well, you work here still, so, you know. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm dual licensed as well, Matt, and so I, I do, I do, I'd say my split is about 95-5, about 5% of my business is up in Washington, but I notice a lot of retirees going there, and I think they acknowledge that they're not going to be in the commute, the terrible commute during working hours. They love the tax benefits, and they love you know buying more house for their money, yet still being in the metro area. So I would agree with you on in, in definitely that segment. You know, we we talked a little bit about the Vancouver market, but I, I want to ask you a really specific question: Are you guys seeing the multiple offers that we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, this is a side note. I'm, I'm very intrigued by escalation clauses. I do a monthly column for the Columbian, and one of the topics that I have a, an entire article written. I worked hard on it. It's done. It's ready to go. But I'm afraid to publish it because it's very polarizing. And it's not intentionally polarizing. But what I found is with escalation clauses, people are either for them or against them. There's mm -hmm. no like, you know, there's no middle ground. And those that like them, you know, see the value. I mean, it's it, it is the proverbial win win where buyer is assured to get the property, seller gets top dollar, and everybody's a winner. But then on the flip side, you have the old your stereotypical listing agent, you know, some gal in her late sixties with the very bright, careful, careful, careful. I know, I know <laughs> the pastel colored blazer and the little gold lapel of whatever company she works for. And she, <laughs> and she says, and I quote, bring me your highest and best offer, highest and best, highest and best. So, you know, that's fine. And that's, and that's great for the seller because you're getting the highest and best, but why should a buyer arbitrarily just roll over and, and pay some exorbitant premium to get the property, whereas an escalation clause allows a little bit more control so that the buyer doesn't just have to go crazy, but is, is still, you know, they, they can choose their own appetite for how high they want to go above that list price. 
But, you know, Matt, it's an interesting story, and Steve, you, this is, uh, I, this will remain nameless because if this person's name got out, their client would probably want to stab him in the eye with a pencil. And uh, we had somebody that didn't utilize an escalation clause on a deal that I was aware of, and they ended up offering way over list, and um, the next best offer was just slightly over list. And so now we've got a situation where this person who ended up paying a, a very, very high premium for a house setting new comps or, you know, having to struggle to get that value on the appraiser side, when the reality is if an escalation clause was used, it probably would have saved them a ton. Well, I know it would have saved them a ton of money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it kind of a, a double-edged sword. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I'm a, it's interesting. Oh, go ahead, Steve. I'm a fan of escalation clauses. I, I do like them. I will tell you one area where they're problematic from a listing agent's perspective is if you get a bunch of them because mm -hmm. there's nothing to escalate. So, and we just had this happen last weekend. We, we took a house on the market at 500,000. We get two offers. Both of them are at 500,000 with escalation clauses to like 525. Well, what are you going over? So that was where it gets a little problematic. We ended up, you know, having dialogue with one of the agents and going, Hey, we see you're willing to pay 525. Can we do a counter at that amount? And, and we, we figured it out, but that's where they get a little tricky. Other than that, I think the world of them, I, I like them and, and I'm completely with you, Matt. You couldn't have said it better. That people love them or hate them, and there's a lot who hate them. And I don't fully get why they do, but in a vacuum, outside of that one little sense, I mean, in a in a vacuum, they make a lot of sense. But but it, it's kind of like Amway, where you know uh, you know on paper Amway makes sense, but but in the in the outside world, it's got a stick. And I think that you know escalation clauses are are you know it's it's just an it's an because they're 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 only you know just recently becoming real popular again, especially in the market that we're in. But you know, to go back to your original question, Steve, I think that we, Vancouver, are seeing a little bit of that. It's not nearly as crazy as Portland, but, you know, I, I would say that, you know, the days of, well, we're going to sleep on it and, and make a decision in the morning. Well, if you sleep on it, then you're done. You're not getting the property. You got to you got to come ready. You got to come aggressive. And and most stuff is, you know, unless it's a, a unique property or it's been sitting there for three months with without selling but a new house on the market priced somewhere between 200 and say 350 ish, that house will be in contract within 24 hours and it'll have multiple offers and more than, more than likely will be above list, which again comes back to these poor appraisers who, who just don't know what the hell to do with themselves when comps are changing, you know, not just in real time, but in future time. Yeah, we've got one that is going to be a mess for everybody that we're going to put on the market here in probably three weeks, and it, it'll be at the two ninety nine price point. It's three bedrooms. It's in closer in southeast. That's going to be one of, as I always refer to it as the battle axe price point, where it's going to yeah. probably lean on the appraiser. It's going to be mayhem for the listing agent. It's going to be mayhem for all the buyers agents. It's just it's just what it is. Right. Good stuff. So, Matt, if one of our listeners wants to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do so? My preferred method of contact is email, but the phone number is, is remarkably corny and remarkably simple. It's just, <laughs> it's just 608 MATT. It's a Vancouver number, of course, 360. So 360-608-MATT, which is 6288 on the numbers. Ellerding is not a name that's uh, easily pronounced or, or certainly not easily spelled. So I could do the email address, but that would just serve to confuse people. It, it, <laughs> it's, like a New York, it's like a New York City cab driver. It's just a, a mess of consonants. So I would say, yeah, just the phone number is the easiest way to uh, to reach out, either by text or by phone call. Fantastic. Well, yeah, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. And uh, we'll put the uh, web address in there, too, in case people you know want to go read your bio first. So. Cool. <laughs> cool. Matt, it's been fantastic having you on the show. You're you're always as lively as ever and uh, full of great nuggets, and I couldn't thank you enough. 
Hey, man, no, I, I appreciate the offer. I'm, I'm flattered that you asked me. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. I'd be happy to do it again. So thanks a lot, guys. Perfect. Well, yeah, I think this was a great interview. I think we covered a lot of great ground. So we very much appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners do, too. Cool, guys. Cool. Well, that wraps up this episode, everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I know me and Steve enjoyed the conversation. So we'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to our show and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.